want you to imagine that you are in charge of a country. Let's stretch our imaginations even further and say you actually care about the welfare of the people in your country. One day, an advisor informs you that there's a disease sweeping the globe. Thousands of people have died, millions more may perish. Despite the efforts of researchers around the world, no one really knows what causes the disease, and there is no cure. What's your next move? travel and trade have made pathogens more mobile than ever, and most countries in the world don't have the public health infrastructure to handle a serious pandemic. Urbanization and climate change have made the world more hospitable for pathogens that thrive in warm areas with poor hygiene. As diseases like Ebola, Zika, and others yet to be named threaten to ravage populations, governments will weigh options of isolation and quarantine in evaluating just how far a state can and should go in the name of public health. In ordinary circumstances, when the state denies freedom to innocent people and tears them from their lives and their families, the world sees a gross violation of human rights. The ethical calculus gets murky, however, when those restrictions help to save millions of lives. Before we go further, I should introduce myself. My name's Morris Fabri. I'm a master's student in bioethics and science policy at Duke University, and you are listening to Isolated Incident, a three-part podcast miniseries on one of the most intense disease responses in modern history. This summer, I researched the HIV epidemic in Cuba. Cuba has consistently had some of the lowest rates of HIV prevalence in the Western Hemisphere. This is noteworthy for two reasons. For one, Cuba achieves good health outcomes across the board with life expectancies and infant mortality rates comparable to the U.S. despite being a resource-strapped country in the face of economic limitations, including a crippling U.S. embargo that weighs on every facet of Cuban life. They have kept the disease at bay in a region of the world with the second highest rates of HIV outside of sub-Saharan Africa. Cuba achieves these outcomes because it prepared for HIV unlike any other country in the world, which brings us to our second point of interest. At the onset of the epidemic in the mid-1980s, Cuba responded to the threat of HIV by destroying all imported blood products, screening nearly the entire sexually active population for HIV, and isolating everybody who tested positive in facilities called sanatorios. Before I dig deeper into a 30-plus year story involving sex, antiretroviral drugs, and punk rockers who injected themselves with HIV-positive blood, I'll clarify why I think you should listen to a white 20-something man from Southeast Michigan drone for hours over a few podcasts about HIV in Cuba. The short answer is I think it's pretty cool stuff, uh, but I'll give you the long answer. In the spring of 2019... I spent a week in Cuba on a vacation with my family. After I returned, a friend recommended a Radiolab episode about HIV in Cuba, specifically about those dudes who infected themselves with HIV to gain access to the sanatoria. So I listened to the podcast. Didn't think much more of it, but then a month later, I was desperate for a practicum project so that I could graduate from Duke. Uh, these combined experiences led me to click on a link to a oral history of HIV in Cuba project on the webpage of Dr. Kersley Stewart, a global health professor here at Duke. The link led to an empty page, so I followed up with Dr. Stewart and asked, is there any way I can help with this? 
In doing so, I stumbled on a goldmine of global health history, and this podcast series is an attempt at extracting some of its riches for new revelations and lessons learned. In the fall of 2012, Dr. Stewart, who served as my academic advisor, went to Cuba to study what appeared to be a story of success in the face of formidable odds. Dr. Stewart is an anthropologist who, until that point in her career, had studied HIV in East Africa, and she wanted an answer to a simple question. How do HIV-positive people live such long lives on such a poor island in Cuba? To answer this question, Dr. Stewart and two Cuban research assistants braved the watchful eye of a government that zealously guards its own narrative and interviewed 40 Cubans with connections to HIV. Most participants were HIV positive. Many had lived in a sanatorium. The few who weren't seropositive were epidemiologists, volunteers in prevention, siblings, and romantic partners of seropositive Cubans whose lives were inextricably linked with the Cuban epidemic. I interviewed Professor Stewart about why she chose to come to Cuba, and you can listen to that interview in the bonus episode on whatever streaming platform you're using. Also, as a quick aside for those who aren't familiar with the language I'm using, seropositive refers to anybody who's been given a positive result in a blood test, and I'll be using that term interchangeably with HIV positive throughout the series. So these interviews, which took place in public health facilities and in participants' homes, show how individual attitudes and entrenched cultural patterns shape life with HIV both within and outside the reaches of official policy. While I'll be doing most of the talking, my goal is to amplify the voices of seropositive Cubans. Throughout this podcast series, participants' testimonies will guide our exploration into what isolation and its aftermath looked like on the ground. These testimonies have been translated into English. To protect the privacy of informants, I've recruited my friends as voice actors to read translated interview transcripts. Nonetheless, the translations were done by a professional, so you will more or less hear in Cubans' own words how policies interact with their views on religion, sexuality, and human nature. The interconnecting threads within these interviews add color to a story that is too often told either in a sterile binary of success and failure or dismissed altogether as too exotic to study. In this episode, you'll hear a broad overview of the history of HIV in Cuba, as told by Western and Cuban media, with some input from interview participants. The episodes to follow will dive deeper into the ways participants experienced the epidemic both within the sanatoria and after they faded from use. In episode two, you will become immersed into the inner sanctum of a sanatorium as we trace how the picturesque campuses evolved over time from medicalized prisons into places of care, refuge, and community. In episode three, I will explore how Cuba's army of public health professionals and volunteers worked to overcome entrenched homophobia, chauvinism, economic barriers, and barriers within government to break down the stigma surrounding HIV. Throughout each episode, we will probe questions of responsibility and blame. Whose job is it to stop an epidemic? How does the decision to isolate, and how do the ways Cuba justified the sanatoria, ripple through the lives of people with and without HIV in the aftermath of isolation? The answers to these questions, and many more, depend on who you ask and when and where you ask them. History told only through press releases and statistics can be misleading. For example, if a country reports that it's diagnosed fewer cases of HIV than the year before, does that mean its prevention programs are working? Or does that mean that the victims of a growing epidemic just aren't being tested? Is it 
still impermissible to keep an innocent person confined if he or she agrees with the rationale behind her confinement? What if she lives a longer and more comfortable life as a result? And evaluations of policies need to take into account that these policies are enforced and felt not by robots, but by people, with all their passions, prejudices, and imperfections. In real life, people can go against type. Educated, cosmopolitan doctors can be homophobes who shirk their duty, while uneducated families from a historically conservative rural countryside might embrace their gay and HIV-positive sons and daughters with open arms. Just as headlines and statistics don't contain the whole truth, neither do these interviews, and I promise you'll hear from them eventually, but let me get my Dan Carlin on first. The selection of stories you hear will reflect my personal bias of how the past informs the present. The quotes you'll hear are ones that I've selected based on themes drawn from literature I chose to review. It's all a very subjective endeavor. The participants themselves are not a nationally representative sample. Most of them came to know about Dr. Stewart's project through informal connections. But Dr. Stewart and her research assistants, who asked not to have their names shared on a podcast, interviewed a diverse collection of participants. They talked to HIV-positive patients and epidemiologists. Some participants were among the first people to live in the sanatorium, and some still live there. Others were diagnosed recently and have never seen a sanatorium. Some are Christian, some practice Santeria, some are professionals, some live on government pensions. They are black, white, gay, straight, and trans men and women whose identities coalesce and affect how they perceive the epidemic and the world. From their testimonies, we can piece together what national statistics mean to the subgroups that comprise the data, and we can color and challenge narratives that get assigned to the numbers from afar. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Some might start the history of HIV in Cuba in 1983. As the story goes... Fidel Castro, revolutionary hero and president of the country at the time, attended a board of directors meeting at the Instituto Pedro Curi, Cuba's Institute of Tropical Medicine, please excuse my accent, uh, while Gustavo Curi, the director of IPK, gave a presentation on dengue, malaria, and on Cuba's newly established epidemiological surveillance system, Fidel who's known by his first name to distinguish him from his brother Raul, another important Cuban politician, Fidel interrupted him and asked, Gustavo, what are you and IPK going to do to stop AIDS from entering Cuba? Fidel called AIDS the epidemic of the century and told Curie it should be his responsibility to detect the first cases and prevent AIDS from becoming a health problem in Cuba. This apocryphal tale sets the stage for an unprecedented disease response. To better understand the urgency that compelled Fidel to issue this mandate, we should look back a little further in time to the Mariel Boatlift in 1980. In the years following the Cuban Revolution in 1959, in which a popular insurgency overthrew a corrupt, U.S.-backed military dictatorship, Cuba exercised tight control over its borders to guard against threats from imperial powers. In March of 1980, this all changed. Here's how Susana Pena, who has written extensively on gay Cubans who emigrated to Miami, described Mariel. The series of events, now referred to as the Mariel Boatlift, began on 28 March 1980 when a Cuban bus driver took a busload of passengers into the Peruvian embassy in Havana to seek asylum. A week later, as tensions escalated, 
Castro announced that anyone seeking asylum would be allowed to leave Cuba and pulled back the troops guarding the embassy. Two days after the announcement, over 10,000 Cubans had crowded into the embassy with the hope of leaving Cuba, end quote. By October of 1980, almost 125,000 people would leave Cuba. A sizable chunk of this group would be gay men. According to Peña, Castro seized on this opportunity to sanitize the Cuban population of undesirables. Some gay men were given the ultimatum of emigration or prison time. Others acted flamboyantly gay in front of Cuban authorities to increase their chances of obtaining permits to leave. Fidel would egg on people to protest these escoria, or scum, who would flee the country. These protests would be rife with homophobia. Cuba, like many other Latin American countries, has a history of machismo, of chauvinism, that dates back to when the Spanish came to colonize in the 16th century. This seems to have been reinforced by social mores advanced through a revolution in 1959 that promoted a male ideal who was tough, courageous, disciplined, and agrarian. Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, another prominent revolutionary figure, were renowned womanizers who exemplified this new socialist man. Homosexuality was associated with urban capitalist decadence, and Fidel feared its influence on the malleable minds of the youth. These beliefs led to the nadir of homophobia in the mid-1960s when gay men, especially those who exhibited flamboyant or effeminate behavior, were interned into work camps run by the military. The Cuban government also resisted feminist and gay rights movements that emanated from the U.S. in the 1970s and the 1980s, associating them with capitalism and promiscuity. When Fidel issued his AIDS mandate in 1983, gay people were still not allowed to be members of the Communist Party. In 1979, Cuba's penal code stipulated that public homosexual conduct warranted a fine. When Marvin Liner, a Queens College professor who made frequent trips to the island, wrote his 1994 book, Sexual Politics in Cuba, homosexuality was completely absent in the public sphere. Now, Cuba has made progress over time. Fidel's niece, Mariela Castro, is a proponent of LGBT rights who also runs Senesex, Cuba's National Center for Sex Education. In 2008, thanks to a charge she led, Cuba passed a law making sex change surgery free for all Cubans. Now, any business that discriminates against gay people gets slapped with a fine. But it takes more than written law to undo centuries of conditioning and practice. AIDS was terrifying in its own right, having killed thousands of people before it reached Cuba's shores. In its early days, AIDS was associated with homosexuality, promiscuity, and drug use. Cuban news outlets depicted the U.S. as a vice-ridden breeding ground for AIDS, even linking cases of AIDS in Europe to tourists coming from North America. After using AIDS as a rhetorical cudgel to denounce the U.S., perhaps the fear of what AIDS might reveal about vices within Cuban society inspired Fidel to have Cuba go the extra mile in containing the disease. Others would ascribe more grandiose motives to the Cuban government. In October, I spoke to Miguel Rojas Sotelo, a Colombian expat who did his Ph.D. in Cuba. I work uh, on uh, trying to recreate uh, historically uh, and then try to put together a, 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 a history and a cultural visual history of, of the Havana Biennale. It's one of the events that was 
somehow bringing Cuba into uh, the global stage as the leader of the third world, in this case, through culture. And the Habana Biennale was the first uh, global event that invited artists from the third world to show their work uh, and to show their work, show their experiences of being in, in different uh, uh, geographical locations that were considered not developed enough. According to Dr. Rojas Sotelo, this goes beyond art. Cuba is trying to organize a global movement to uncouple nations like itself from dependency on powerful first world countries. Yeah, this idea of independence somehow is uh, uh, achieved uh, through the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Mm. And, uh, and it becomes uh, like a, a lighthouse for many other nations looking for uh, in the process of decolonization after World War II, right? And in that moment of, of, of the achieving of, of independence, full independence in, in 1959 and the creation of the Cuban Republic as we know it today, Cuba embarks on, on, on a solidarity movement. Why? Because it believes that the only way to achieve real independence is to help others like itself, a small country, poor country, underdeveloped country, to uh, achieve self-reliance. Then uh, in order to do that, uh, Cuba developed several interesting programs. One is the literacy campaign, right? The first thing Cuba does is, is to achieve 100% or 99 point something percent of literacy in a country that was illiterate before, you know, just few years prior, then it starts exporting that kind of knowledge. Uh, it does it in Central America, uh, in during the revolutionary struggles in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Uh, it also expands to uh, other pr processes that are taking place in Africa during decolonization after World War II, uh, sent, you know, not only people to try to help in literacy issues, but doctors, and it becomes one of the big issues. Cuba becomes a, a net exporter of of health, of care, <laughs> health care mm -hmm. through, through missions, uh, and also soldiers, right? Cuba participated in, in revolutionary armies uh, in, in, you know, in Angola, in Central America, in Bolivia, where, you know, a chest going to be taken down uh, mm -hmm. in one of these moments. And so this is sort of a part of a movement to untie Cuba and the rest of the third world from their dependence on sort of the greater powers then? Yes, Cuba, after all, you know, the struggles of becoming independent and realizes that the only way to do it is through uh, solidarities, through peers, right? Uh, the, the Cuban revolution, let's say, is, uh, if well is leaded by white, bourgeois people like Castro and El Che and it's is 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 made out of of peasants and workers and you know, a, little, a little bit like the same thing that happened with the Soviet Union then it it believes you know that that the only way to achieve independence is through peers is you have to help your peers then you cannot liberate Norway, but you can help liberate Angola, right? Because you have some common histories of colonization and, and dependency and, and oppression and right? similar stories. Then Cuba 
tries to do that, right? Tries to identify, you know, these spaces in which these these struggles are happening, and they are trying to export that same the formula of of building armies from from the bottom up and connecting, you know, independence uh, and revolutionary leaders uh, across the global south. The the what is interesting is that Cuba is very poor. I mean, Cuba mm -hmm. does this with very you know, few means they they really don't have uh, uh, like the economic power of the or the uh, war machine that other countries have. So there's an element of Cuba's decision to throw every possible weapon in its arsenal at HIV that can be linked to Cuba's taste for grand projects. To hold off a disease that had already terrorized wealthy first world countries would be a great victory over the neoliberal world order. Cuba would show the world that through ingenuity, grit, and collective sacrifice, the marginalized nations of the world could do great things. Before considering Cuba's response as a model for developing nations, we must also consider that Cuba had the tools to carry out an isolation policy that few other countries had. They already had in place a national epidemiological surveillance system created in response to a dengue epidemic in the early 1980s. Thanks in part to Soviet subsidies, Cuba could invest in its medical and research infrastructure in the 1970s. This was a decision born in foresight and in desperation. On the foresight side of things, their strategic investments meant that Cuba would attain the highest physician-per-population ratio in the world. Cuba placed family doctors in every residential area in the countries, professional who were responsible for providing both medical care and prevention education. Cubans don't draw a divide between health care and public health. Cuba's clinics, hospital, and medical schools are all run by the Ministry of Public Health. Doctors were more than just professionals then. They were friends and neighbors to the people they served. But they were also effective eyes for a government hungry for information about dangerous or counter-revolutionary behavior. When AIDS hit, Cuba placed enormous priority on identifying and containing people with AIDS. This imbued epidemiologists and health personnel with tremendous leverage and authority over people's lives, and some would wield this duty with heavy hands, outing seropositive people to their friends and families. There's also an economic component to Cuba's decision to train so many doctors. A healthcare system with a focus on preventive primary care helps people before the state has to pay for their hospital bills. Cuba is a small country without many natural resources, so to generate hard currency, Cuba exports the resources it has in abundance. Education and healthcare professionals, Cuba sends doctors all around the world. The government keeps the majority of salaries earned by doctors abroad, but the share the doctors get to keep still dwarfs what they'd earn on the island, where they'd take home about $50 a month. To make sense of the decision to isolate, it's important to understand what Cuba had as well as what it lacked. Let's look back to 1983, two years before the first AIDS diagnosis on the island. Cuba had the means to reach a big chunk of its population through their healthcare system. As a small island, Cuba could keep tabs on who crossed its border. Cuba also had a formidable research infrastructure with medical labs strewn across the country. What it didn't have was information. AIDS blood tests didn't exist yet. Patients were diagnosed based on clinical symptoms. Cuba also didn't have a cure. Maybe with some time, the people who run those research labs would invent a vaccine, but at the time, AIDS was a death sentence. 
Cuba treated this disease with the seriousness it deserved. In 1983, two years after the first reported cases of AIDS in the United States, in two years before U.S. President Ronald Reagan would even mention the disease, Cuba had set up a National AIDS Commission to develop a comprehensive prevention and treatment program. The government instructed doctors to report on any incidences of Kaposi's sarcoma or pneumocystis carini pneumonia, which are hallmark opportunistic infections that attack the weakened immune systems of people with AIDS. Cuba also banned the importation of blood products from countries where AIDS existed and destroyed over 20,000 units of imported blood. This was a bold move. It led to a shortage of blood for medical use. But Cuba felt compelled to do this, because while it was known that AIDS traveled through blood, Cuban doctors had no way to screen blood for AIDS. Cuba's blood destruction was intended to eliminate any infection via blood transfusion, and it worked. By 1989, only 4 out of 500 hemophiliacs in the country were HIV positive. For comparison, half of all hemophiliacs in the world would get infected with HIV from contaminated blood products, and thousands would die. Cuba almost completely dodged this bullet because they acted swiftly and decisively on the knowledge that AIDS was a blood-borne illness. Meanwhile, because Cuba has historically high turnout at the blood bank, they made up for all the lost blood within a few years. If we believe Cuba's Ministry of Public Health, intravenous drug use was and is virtually non-existent on the island. The only way left for AIDS to be transmitted then was sexual intercourse. No country on earth can stop its citizens from having sex, and in the early 1980s Cuba, condom use was not prevalent. In fact, Marvin Liner writes that even as late as 1989, many Cuban physicians opposed condom use because it interfered with sexual pleasure. IUDs were the preferred mode of contraception in most heterosexual relationships. Cuban citizens traveled for business and for pleasure, and tourism has historically been an important part of the Cuban economy, and when people traveled, they had sex. People who contracted HIV might not experience symptoms until weeks after they were infected, and the early symptoms of HIV are things like a sore throat, chills, aches, and fatigue, symptoms that can easily be confused for a common cold. Some people with HIV can live for years without any symptoms. Furthermore, while people with HIV can transmit it immediately after they're infected, it can take a month for HIV to show up on a blood test. All of this is to say that even when HIV test kits became available in 1985, there was no way to prevent it from entering the country, short of totally closed borders, which would lead to economic paralysis. Cuba bought 750,000 test kits when they became available in 1985. Because of the U.S. embargo, Cuba had to buy them from France. By 1986, Cuba had developed their own diagnostic, the SUMA, which would be used widely throughout the Americas. Cuba initially limited testing to everyone who had been out of the country since 1981. As Cuba developed their own testing capabilities, they expanded the populations who got tested. By 1986, all blood donors and everybody whose work involved travel were screened for HIV. The people Cuba deemed most likely to be exposed to HIV would submit to multiple tests. By 1987, Cuba extended screening to all pregnant women, inpatients, and prisoners. By 1989, half of the sexually active population had been tested for HIV, and by 1990, 75% of the sexually active population had been tested. Eventually, Cuba would test almost everyone on the island. Citizens did not, and still do not, have much say in whether or not they get tested. 
Cuban health professionals can run blood drawn for any purpose through an HIV test kit. Informed consent was not and still is not seen as necessary. But in Cuba, health officials would argue that people don't value autonomy as highly as they do in the U.S. Cuban citizens feel a collective duty to a public health system that provides free and equal care for all. For example, the existence of things like an anti-vax movement in the U.S. boggles Cubans' minds. It's just simply not possible to not get your kids vaccinated. In 1985, operating within a set of norms that encouraged sacrifice for the public good, the Ministry of Public Health had no qualms about instituting a program of sexual contract tracing. People who've tested positive for HIV would be asked to rattle off their entire sexual history. While this was invasive, it was also effective. 4.6% of sexual contacts were found to be HIV positive, a far higher prevalence than was found in other at-risk populations like foreign students, prisoners, or people with hemophilia. In 1985, Cuba detected its first cases of HIV. The first group of Cubans found to be HIV positive were healthcare workers and soldiers who had served abroad in Africa. At the time, Cuban media encouraged the notion that AIDS was a disease of the depraved that flourished in capitalist dystopias where homosexuality and promiscuity ran amok. It was jarring, then, that HIV arrived in these heterosexual people who held honorable positions of service to their country. These men and women were held in a naval hospital until April of 1986 when Los Cocos became ready for use. Los Cocos, which literally translates to the coconuts, was named for the lush tropical flora that cover the grounds. The facility, located in Boyeros, a municipality in the southwest part of Havana, was used as a psychological sanatorium for military veterans before it was repurposed for HIV patients. By the end of 1986, 90 seropositive patients would live there. As the epidemic grew, Cuba would construct more sanatoria around the country. By 1992, there was a sanatorium in each of Cuba's 14 provinces. From 1986 to 1993, stay in the sanatorium was compulsory for everyone who tested positive for HIV. Sean Smallman, who wrote a book in 2004 on AIDS in Latin America, said that, quote, in practice, many HIV-positive Cubans found it impossible to say no when asked to enter the sanatoriums during the 1980s, end quote. Cuba's criminal code states that those who contravene the measures and dispositions dictated by competent health authorities for the prevention and control of communicable diseases and fail to support the programs and or campaigns designed for the control and eradication of serious or dangerous diseases or epidemics will be subject to three months to one year in prison or receive a fine of 100 to 300 pesos or both. Those who, quote, maliciously spread or or facilitate the spread of disease, end quote, can spend three to eight years in prison. Per a 1999 Human Rights Watch report, Cuba frequently denies its detainees due process, and its prisons are rife with physical and sexual abuse. The threat of legal trouble is enough to persuade people to comply with public health policy. Jonathan Mann, who founded and directed the World Health Organization's Global AIDS Program in the late 1980s, called the sanatoria pretty prisons. The Cuban government would draw attention to the pretty, as the sanatoria weren't bad places to be as someone with HIV. Sanatorium residents had medical attention, psychological support, ample diets, air conditioning, and even color TV at their disposal. 
Residents received comprehensive education on how to live with their disease. The Cuban government paid them the salaries they would have earned on the outside. By 1996, Cuba was spending $24,000 per sanatorium resident per day. This exorbitant cost of care, at least by Cuban standards, was one reason why Cuba would transition away from the sanatoria. When they were first built, the sanatoria were surrounded by barbed wire fences. Sometime in the late 1980s, in 1987 or 1989, depending on where you look, control of the sanatoria passed from the military to the Ministry of Public Health. Jorge Perez became director of the sanatoria in 1989, and he would make major changes to treat sanatorium residents more like human beings. In 1998, thanks to his advocacy, IPK, the hospital that would candle handle complicated AIDS patients, began treating AIDS patients in the same spaces as general population patients. Everyone in the interview spoke about Dr. Perez in glowing terms. He's described as compassionate, a patient advocate, and he literally wrote the book on AIDS in Cuba. Dr. Perez was my advisor's entry point into Cuba. Without him, this podcast probably wouldn't have happened, so we can all thank him for his book on top of his service to people with HIV. So Dr. Perez put patients to work. Before he took charge, residents only had craft projects to occupy their time. First, he put together brigades to tear down the barbed wire and spruce up the sanatoria, which he says were run down and overcrowded when he took over. He let HIV-positive healthcare professionals treat patients in the sanatoria. He loosened up restrictions on excursions outside the grounds, permitting residents evaluated as responsible to leave without an escort, and even letting some go home on weekends. If it feels like we're zipping through time, don't worry. We're taking a deep dive into the sanatoria next episode. Anyway, in 1993, Cuba announced their ambulatory care program, wherein residents deemed, quote, responsible, end quote, to themselves and others, would be allowed to live and receive care outside the sanatoria. From 1993 until about 1997, patients were still required to spend anywhere from three to nine months in the sanatoria to take courses on how to live with the disease. Initially, both due to the comforts of the sanatoria and the difficulty of reintegrating into society after living years apart from jobs, neighbors, and families, most sanatorium residents chose to remain in the sanatoria. Over time, however, people slowly returned to their jobs and their lives outside the sanatoria. Cuba fell on hard times in the early 1990s. The fall of the Soviet Union, combined with a tightening of the U.S. embargo in 1992, led to rising unemployment and strict rationing. Cuba's people could barely eat. The country could no longer afford to spend so much on medical care for seropositive people. To stimulate the economy, the government expanded its tourism industry. With more foreigners entering the country, containment was no longer an economically viable option. The stiffening of the U.S. embargo, intended to facilitate regime change, cut off a struggling Cuba from medicine and food that would have saved lives. Cuba also didn't have much to spend on patented HIV medications. Occasionally, the government would splurge on vital medicines. For example, in 1996, Cuba bought highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HEART, as it was known for all children with AIDS and their mothers, at the cost of $14,400 per patient. Everyone else had to hope for donations from NGOs. It was a complicated time for HIV, one in which salvation existed only for a lucky few. Finally, in 2001, Cuba started to make its own generic antiretrovirals, and 
By 2003, Cuba could provide them free of charge to all who needed them. As Cuba moved away from the sanatoria, their focus shifted from containment to education of the general public. In 1998, they established the National STI-HIV-AIDS Prevention Center with AIDS getting special billing because of its severity. This center would guide educational and prevention activities across the country. With the support of NGOs, Cuba developed outreach projects toward women, men who have sex with men, sex workers, and other at-risk populations. Cuba's Army of Health promoters took prevention education to schools, workplaces, and to the streets of Havana. In the sanatoria, in addition to teaching people how to live with their disease, Cuba offered workshops to train people in health promotion. The sanatoria offered space for people with HIV to bond over their shared misery. Toughened by the misinformation and stigma they faced in the public and in the healthcare system, sanatorium residents became activists to change the narrative around HIV. In 1992, they formed a nationally recognized organization called HEPESIDA, or GP-AIDS, the AIDS Prevention Group, which, as of 2006, had trained over 15,000 health promoters. Seropositive people also helped each other through mutual support groups that formed around the country. These groups still exist today. They are entirely member-funded and operate with minimal government oversight. Focus the Prevention Center, understand that Imposing the kind of structure and surveillance that exists in most Cuban organizations would crush the solace and solidarity that enables people with HIV to live well and take part in organic prevention projects together. Viewed from a distance with a sympathetic eye, Cuba's response seems cautious and commendable. Through isolation, surveillance, and education of seropositive people, the government devoted considerable resources to keeping the general population safe from HIV. Concentrating care for seropositive people in the sanatoria and in IPK allowed Cuba to study the disease and disseminate best practices to family care doctors around the country. When the sanatoria were no longer viable, Cuba could gradually transition to decentralized care. At the beginning of the epidemic, people with HIV had to travel all the way to IPK to receive medical care. To improve access for seropositive people across the whole island, Cuba would need to educate doctors and communities that would have previously shuttled people with HIV off to Havana. Seropositive people have played a vital role in this transition. Of the 30 seropositive people Dr. Stewart interviewed, only three were not involved in some sort of a prevention activity. Nine were involved in multiple projects. We'll delve more into their stories in podcast number three. But Dr. Stewart's interviewees point to a combination of prevention care and social support to explain why Cubans with HIV reported a better quality of life than HIV-positive people in the United States, Spain, and Singapore, among other countries. At the same time, there are grounds for criticism. The Cuban Revolution's marginalization of gay people pushed gay life underground, setting the stage for HIV to spread in places where the government could not reach. HIV is not spread through the air or through casual contact, which weakens the rationale for keeping seropositive people physically separate. Cuba was also slow to teach the public to protect itself. Instead of dedicating resources to prevention through education, Cuba threw its resources into a policy that placed the entire burden for stopping the disease on the shoulders of people with HIV. Isolation imbued HIV with connotations of distrust and death as something so dangerous and horrible 
that it justified government-sanctioned removal from society. Fear of the sanatoria led some people with HIV to avoid the healthcare system altogether. Before the advent of antiretroviral medication, HIV-positive Cubans could reasonably expect to die in the sanatoria. Several interview participants were told by sanatorium psychologists that they'd be dead within five years of their diagnosis. When antiretroviral treatment turned HIV into a manageable, chronic disease, it took decades for Cuban society to unlearn the notion that people with HIV were so dangerous that they had to be removed from their families and their daily lives. In some places, that stigma still exists. Cuba's experience reveals that decisions about how to respond to and address epidemics are shaped by political, historic, and cultural forces. These decisions can either lead to disease spread or containment with life-altering consequences and impacts. And those decisions can often be ethically murky. Talking to the people who have experienced an epidemic firsthand provides a useful frame to show how all this high-minded ethical talk looks in practice. For example, here's what a Cuban soldier who was infected in Angola in the mid-80s said about his return to the country and his subsequent diagnosis. Deceit was the element that prevailed during those first moments. They were not sincere in relating to revealing my real diagnosis. They told me they needed me to go with the head of prevention in Sancti Spiritu, who was heading for the general staff headquarters of the Central Army in Matanzas. They said I would be back home in Sancti Spiritu the next day. My family thought I was returning to Sancti Spiritu that same day. I only had with me the outfit I was wearing, nothing else. I was not ready to be hospitalized, nor did it ever cross my mind at that moment that I would be hospitalized. Later, he told me that maybe I was summoned for a medal award, and I said, what award would that be if I did not even participate in any battle in Angola? During two years I spent there, I was not in a battle by any means, so that was all the deceit. When we were about to enter the province of Havana, I asked him to stop the car and speak clearly to me. I told him some tests had been conformed to me when I was in Loma Blanca in, in Havana, and I wanted to be there if there was a problem with that. Then he said the problem was that I was positive for the hepatitis type B and I should be in a hospital for a week. Does it undercut Cuba's narrative if sanatorium residents were lied to, rounded up by force, and treated like prisoners? The military saw fit to lie to this man's face about his diagnosis and his treatment even after he was in custody. What does that say about how sanatorium staff would feel about the people in their care? Does this have any bearing on the praiseworthiness of Cuba's low rates of HIV prevalence? How about the whole sexual contact tracing program? How does that work? Here's what one epidemiologist had to say about it. There is something we have tried to achieve, the informed consent. I do not authorize, of course, I do not impose on anybody either to get a rapid test. There is persuasion. There are patients who at a given point in time through the epidemiological survey turn out to be a contact partner. And on many occasions, we do not even tell them that they have been identified as a partner. We simply go to a workplace to do a screening, and there are complaints. They say that it's only two months since we went there, and we explain to them the window period, and that the objective is not to carry out a screening, but to identify the contact partner, who does not know that he was identified, that he was said to be a contact person to see whether they are positive to HIV or not. We have been that careful with patients. On some occasion, we have tested patients who have reported partners 
and they have seen this as a mass test, not as a specific test, although he was the target. He was then asked whether the subjects of contact tracing were informed that they had sexual relations with someone with HIV. No, we try not to. They must be exceptional cases. A housewife, someone who is unemployed, who cannot be identified within the work environment. To any rule, there has to be an exception. But we try by all means not hurt the patient's sensitivity and much less to notify that the patient has had sexual relationships with an HIV patient. This is touchy stuff, isn't it? These interviews took place in 2012 and 2013. The surveillance that he and other participants described took place since the onset of the epidemic and probably still takes place today. On one hand, Cuban health officials want to allow seropositive people to keep their serostatus confidential. On the other hand, the person getting tested gets hung out to dry. Also, note that the epidemiologist will, quote, inform the workplace, end quote, of the real reason for the test. The epidemiologists are all-knowing and all-seeing. The boss knows his or her employee has had sex with a seropositive person, and the person getting tested knows nothing. Cuba's sanatorium policy was dripping with paternalism, and this trend continues well after HIV-positive people stopped living under the same roof. Some parts of the interviews contain damning indictments of Cuba's government, health system, and society. Others are more uplifting. Here's a seropositive man talking about the mutual support team that he founded. We've not only supported one another, we've not only supported materially, we've had parties, we've gone for a walk, we've gone to other provinces, we've met people with HIV from other provinces who have invited us over and we have done many things countrywide that have motivated my life despite my work. I found motivations that have made me live differently. Here's another seropositive man who still lives in Los Cocos. I see myself better now because I've learned so much and have my education. Before I was very wild. I had a wild sex life. I was careless with my nutrition and I did not take care of myself. I didn't I don't mean I was a vagabond or marginal, but I was young and inexperienced. As I said, this place has been a school for me. I've learned a lot. They've given me an education here. I started as a driver and see where I am now. I won't say I can become the president of the republic because that's too much. I adore Fidel and I don't want him to die. These are stories told by a small fraction of the people who comprise Cuba's impressive epidemiologic data points. Their material circumstances are shaped by clashing narratives of history and human nature that are beyond their control. Their lives happen in the infinite moments between diagnosis and death. Through their testimonies, we can expand our imagination of how policy affects and is affected by the humans who enact and experience it. On our next episode, we will hear firsthand stories from people who lived in the sanatoria, a prison so beautiful and pleasant that hundreds of Cubans would infect themselves with HIV to get in. That'll do it for our first episode of Isolated Incident. Thank you for listening. The intro song you heard was Algorithms by Chad Crouch. The outro song you hear now is Super Sloppy Space Junk by Milkshake Daddy. Additional music on this podcast came from Frank Guerrero y su grupo Ache, and from Blue Dot Sessions. Ambient mob noise came from Filmat on freesound.org. 
Before wrapping up, I'd like to issue a huge thank you to Dr. Rojas Sotelo and, of course, to Dr. Stewart, well, to me she's Professor Stewart, for sharing their perspectives. Remember, you can listen to that additional bonus interview with Dr. Stewart on whatever streaming platform you are using. Please seek that out. If you're interested in following up on anything you heard in this podcast, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. That is at MoMoneyMoFabri. Fabri is spelled F-A-B-B-R-I. Thanks for listening, and I hope you listen to the next one.